0: You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McLeanathan,
1: and I'm Sarah Welch Larson. And are those sleigh bells that I hear?
0: <laughs> uh, those are sleigh bells. I've got some uh, some little reindeer antlers, you know, under the recording table. I decide not to pop them up because that might be just a little bit too much. But it is sort of like Christmas in February here on Seeing and Believing. Uh, Inadvertently, I asked you to watch a Christmas movie for this week's watch list, and I'm not going to apologize. But it's probably best to just acknowledge that
1: I'm still never going to let you live it down, honestly.
0: (laughs) A couple months late, and this is what happens, listeners. We are going to be reviewing Carol during our watch list segments. But before that, we've got a review of another period piece, Romance. We're going to be talking about Joe Wright's Peter Dinklage starring musical adaptation of Cyrano. That's coming up on episode 322 of Seeing and Believing. Yes, we're here on episode 322 of Seeing and Believing. Thank you again, listeners, for tuning in. Uh, We had some technical difficulties uh, the last couple of weeks as we've adjusted to the new world order of recording face-to-face instead of in the virtual recording studio. So I got a good feeling about this week. This is going to be the, the week that we get it all perfect, Sarah. Well,
1: no notes, no issues, no problems, nothing whatsoever. Um, it's just very weird knowing that you also have a face on the other <laughs> side of that microphone.
0: <laughs> so wait, one thing that Wade would always joke about is that, you know, we never actually met each other face to face until my wedding. Mm-hmm. Um, and the one... Uh, picture that exists of us. My eyes are closed, <laughs> and he th- his personal theory was that I just don't have a soul, and so I was just trying to, you know, keep that from making out into the world. But yeah, you know, I you you'd say I have I have a soul, right? I'll I'll have to take notes and get back to you on that one. But yeah, uh, I'll I'll take what I can get. We are going to talk about a couple of movies that have very big hearts uh, on this week's episode. Carol is my pick for the watch list. That's coming up in the second segment. Uh, great romance, I think. We'll hear what Sarah thinks about that when we get there. Uh, but for now, let's uh, turn our attention to the new adaptation of Cyrano de Bergerac. This is the latest film from director Joe Wright. He's adapting the classic play written by Edmond Rostand. The basic premise of this very famous story gets a bit of a facelift. Peter Dinklage here, steps into the role of Cyrano de Bergerac, and Cyrano's trademark divergence from conventions of beauty comes in the form of Dinklage's stature, rather than the large nose of Rostand's hero. The other innovation that Wright brings to the source material is to make it a musical, Tapping indie band The National to provide the music and songs to underscore the romantic longing that has always been a key ingredient in Rastan's story. So, Sarah, let's start there. I think that seems like a good starting point to begin our discussion. How do you think Cyrano works as a musical? Does it succeed at capturing the spirit of the source material? And is it a comfortable fit for that kind of format?
1: I kind of wish that it had leaned into the musical side a little bit more, like maybe more dancing in particular. Like that's kind of what I was expecting. And there are some dance scenes um, in here as well, but most of the musical part is focused purely on music and lyrics. And um, I, I don't know that it fully inhabited like the soul of a true musical. It didn't really feel quite like everybody was about to just burst into song at like, any given moment like there were there were fleeting moments where that does happen there's a great scene in a bakery where people are dancing while they're baking bread and another one where there's um, some fight choreography that feels very dance like it was mostly focused on the lyrics by Matt Berninger and Karen Besser and um, that part worked for me very much I feel like there's kind of and I know you're the national guy probably more so than I am Um, I think there's this thread almost of both self-loathing a little bit and then also longing for something pure and good that runs through the nationals music at least the ver- like the the albums that i am familiar with And that really seems to fit the story of Cyrano, right? Like Cyrano kind of hates himself a little bit. And then he's also in love with this like pure and good and intelligent woman. And those two pieces of him that are at war with each other, I think really fit the music quite well. So did you get that same sense?
0: You you know, it's uh, like you uh, rightly observed. The National is great. I I love The National. And I think it's kind of, it's one of those pairings, the National and the story of Cyrano, that when you hear it, it seems like obvious. Why didn't somebody think of drawing those two uh, things together before? Because, you know, when I when I think of the National, I think of, like you said, you know, the yearning for something beautiful, a little bit of self-loathing. But also there's. I the reason I love their music so much is I think Matt Berninger's lyrics and the music, which here is written by his bandmates of the National, Brian Bryce and Aaron uh, Destner, um, just draws out this this ineffable longing. Like to listen to the National is to feel a yearning for something, and whatever that something is, is oftentimes a little bit hazy and ill defined, and that's part of the appeal of the music and one of the reasons why I think so many people can identify with it but the weird thing about this musical is that although it does it is kind of a match made in heaven and I like a lot of the songs uh, I don't know that it feels very good as an actual cinematic musical, mm-hmm. which is another thing you wouldn't expect because Joe Wright is in a lot of ways, a very theatrical director. His Anna Karenina was, yeah. was very self-consciously theatrical. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he had that terrible Peter Pan adaptation, which, you know, I have not
1: seen it, not uh, planning to, <laughs> you know,
0: again, it's, it's uh it's a musical and it uses, you know, modern rock hits in a lot of places. And so it seems like he would, this would be right up his alley, but it didn't seem like he was as interested in what makes a cinematic musical both cinematic and a great musical. It seemed like he was interested in the story and interested in working with The National, but it doesn't seem like it always quite meshed altogether.
1: Yeah, it kind of feels like the movie's being pulled in a lot of different directions at once, and they don't really mesh particularly well with each other. Like, I really liked the individual parts of this movie, like the um, production design and the costuming. Gorgeous. There's some incredible color work that's being done here. It's like lovely, like light blues and pale golds and light greens. And then this incredible crimson red that keeps popping up on different characters. Um, A lot of the lighting kind of feels like a romantic period painting, which fits the period of the story as well and also kind of fits the subject matter. But that plus... Music by The National plus staging that didn't really feel like it was all that wedded to the setting itself, plus like a couple of time skips and shifts in venue that just like it didn't really feel like it was all the same story to me. And so it just didn't really fully cohere as a
0: movie either. I mean, it doesn't it didn't help for me that the movie doesn't quite get off on the right foot. The, The very first musical or the... The second musical number, I guess, is the first uh, set piece, I guess. It's where uh, Cyrano makes his grand entrance and has his his first duel with uh, an effete fop who calls him a freak. And, you know, obviously that does not end well for the effete fop. But it's scored to kind of a hip-hop-flavored song that is not—it's not a great song, and Peter Dinklage is not a great— like, he's, he's not a great rapper. <laughs> 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 and, or or he, he's not good at kind of giving it the rhythm that you would expect from a musical number from like that. And that, I think, kind of gets it off to a shaky start. And it's always kind of trying to... Uh, find find its footing a little bit after that, at least at least for me.
1: Yeah, I was wondering at first why he was rhyming and nobody else was when he was speaking out loud, and I figured that was the movie's way of saying, like, this guy's smarter than everybody else and he's very, like, I don't know, loquacious or something. But the fact that I kind of came across... The fact that I was kind of confused by it was a little bit, like... It, it threw me off my footing as well, like, watching the movie, and I wasn't quite sure what the tone was going for. And I think I found it a little bit later on. Like, a couple of scenes later, Cyrano confesses his love for Roxanne to a friend, and he delivers the line like he's starting to break into song and when he delivered it i almost heard matt berninger's voice in his own voice as well and he says something where like he's lying flat on his back and he says that the, the sole purpose of his life is to love roxanne and the way that he says it you can feel the weight of that almost responsibility that he's sort of taken upon himself especially because he's not willing to tell her how he feels about her um at that point, I think I clicked a little bit more into the movie's like wavelength and what it was going about, but every so often something would come up where I just wasn't sure what was happening, and then I would just fall out of sync with it again.
0: Yeah, I, I think part of that is... So the the original play is written... A lot of it is written in verse, mm-hmm. um, and you know, obviously translated from, from the French, and I do kind of wonder if that quality was, was Joe Wright kind of trying to find the rhythm where... We're not in song, but we're still. Tr- he's still trying to capture that, um that poetry of the play somehow in in the dialogue scenes. And again, I, I think it bucks up against the pretty modern tone of of the overall movie, right? Like the you know, obviously, this isn't Cyrano isn't saddled with a with an unsightly nose. He's uh, in this adaptation a dwarf, and that uh, presents you know, other uh, difficulties and barriers to the the way that he wants to express his feelings for Roxanne. And that that feels very up-to-date. It feels like uh, Wright is very intentionally trying to update the story and bring it into the modern day while still keeping it as a period piece. And I think that he, he set himself a task that he maybe shouldn't have. I, I think maybe just leaning straight into the modernization and not worrying so much about hewing close to the source material maybe would have would have been a benefit
1: yeah i mean there were some weird deviations from the source material i feel like there's there's moments where like the scale shifts a little bit there's a scene in the original play where Cyrano fights 100 men at once and in this version it's only 10 and then there's a time skip that's like 15 years I think in the original and it's only three here so it kind of feels like he's trying to condense this story I think in some interesting ways um, while also trying to stay as faithful as possible to like the individual plot beats one thing that I did appreciate though um, especially with the casting of Peter Dinklage. I think he's great in this role. Um, and I really appreciated the way that Joe Wright presents him and treats him in camera. Like the camera, whenever he's on screen, the camera's at his eyeline. It's not above him. The camera treats him like an equal. And I really appreciate that because there is this limitation that he's dealing with with his disability but it isn't going to be the only thing that defines him like he's still allowed to be a person who can walk through the world so um that piece at least i appreciated very much
0: you know i i'm of two minds about Pierre dinklage i think he's he gives a great performance and i think in his best moments um singing he basically sounds like a dead ringer for (laughs) matt berniger of of the national yeah uh to the point where you i almost wondered if um Berninger was dubbing in for for Dinklage in some places. I think he does he does fine. I don't know that um I'm I'm totally sold on his overall performance of of the the music. Even in these places where he sounds like Berninger, he just seems like he's he's not quite where he where he wants to be, especially compared to his co-stars. I think Haley Bennett and Kelvin Harrison are, you know, seem like very accomplished singers. And I think that I don't know that Wright has really mastered the the trick of when they're all you know singing together, singing duets of really making them making the skills of some of the stars make the shortcomings of other stars uh, stand out in, in sharper relief.
1: Mm-mm. Yeah, that makes sense. I kept getting thrown, I think, a little bit by the rhythms between those characters. Like, there's a scene where all three of them are singing at once, where it just kind of. I was distracted by all of those voices altogether and the way that their images were being layered because I think there's some double exposure happening in there and, um, at the same time. It kind of really feels like he's throwing a lot at the wall here and not all of it is sticking.
0: Yeah, I mean, to be fair, a lot of it does stick. I So let's talk a little bit about the um, the shift that it makes about two-thirds of the way through into a war movie because that is, that is something that... That happens uh, after the famed balcony scene, mm-hmm. uh, which is you know the the aspect of Cyrano that even if you haven't don't know anything at all about Cyrano de Bergerac, you know about the the balcony scene where uh, Christian is trying to get over his tongue tiedness with Roxanne mm-hmm. and Cyrano standing off in the sh- in the shadows, sort of like feeding him lines about what to say. Mm-hmm. I think in this version that. Uh, that scene works really well. It's funny. Uh, It works up to a really, I think, very effective, swooningly romantic climax uh, with a duet uh, overcome between Dinklage and and Bennett that I think works really well. And then we shift into basically a war movie where uh, Cyrano and Christian find themselves on the front lines about to be sent more or less on a suicide mission. And that's where I think... The movie, to me, feels like, oh, this is what Joe Wright is actually interested in. It, it felt to me very, you know, I mean, if you've seen Atonement, you know that you that you think of the shot of Dunkirk, that, that amazing single shot around the beaches of Dunkirk was incredible. And I think that scene suggested to me kind of... Uh, an interest and a verve in the directing that I, I was really hoping to see elsewhere in the film. I, I and I thought it worked like Gangbusters.
1: Okay, so that scene didn't work for me at all, <laughs> and yeah. and I think it's because it reminded me of a transition in Darkest Hour, which is another Joe Wright movie that I really didn't care for. Yeah,
0: Darkest Hour, maybe not no, not, not his finest hour. <laughs> no,
1: um, but there's a there's a transition that goes to the bombing of France, and I think also Dunkirk as well. Like he keeps returning to dunkirk moments where people are being sent on suicide missions and i have a really hard time with war movies to begin with i have a difficult time like appreciating them i think for what they are like i i check out mentally most of the time and i really checked out here it's shot in almost a monochrome which is a very effective transition from like the very swoony romantic colors that show up earlier in the movie um but it's so stark compared to everything else that's happening. And it just felt like such a tonal shift that it really jarred me out. It was one of those moments that took me out of sync. And it just never really worked for me.
0: You're not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, it, it's it, it's, a, it's a weird thing about, and I think this is maybe the issue with the movie as a whole, is not so much that the constituent parts are bad. It's more that they don't cohere very well. And I wouldn't disagree that it's, Kind of a hard left turn to go from this lush, swooning, romantic period piece with you know flowing silks and, letters and- right, you know, and and th- those things have their own charms as well. And, and then going into this, you know, very desaturated uh, war sequence um, that has the that contains what I would say is one of the better songs, uh, "Whenever I Fall," which is. You, you're shaking didn't your head. It didn't work
1: for me either. Oh, man. It really didn't work for me. It felt like it was really trying to stamp on, like, an emotional button. And, like, I get it. That's what it's for. That's what that um, That's what that song is meant to do. And I just, it didn't work for me.
0: Oh, man. you uh, I... <laughs> Got a hard disagree on with you on that one. I, I thought it, it worked really well. And, it, you know, it helps when you've got, you know, Glenn Hansard of the swell season and, and you know, some other, you know, indie troubadours kind of singing those, those national lyrics. I thought that it was the, the, even if it didn't mesh well with the rest of the film, I was pretty on board with, with that and found it pretty affecting.
1: Mm, yeah, there was a line about like um, heaven is wherever, like I'm going to fall essentially that I thought was quite effective. But then every time it got repeated, I think it lost its power a little bit for me. So that might be it. Hard <laughs> hard
0: disagree. Stone hearted. <laughs> you are stone hearted. No, yep.
1: Not, Not a sentimental form. bone in my body. <laughs>
0: Would you, well, I, I wonder. So let's talk about sentiment here, because if there's one thing that a movie like this needs in order to work and maybe uh, arguably most musicals need to work it's it's the uh the sentiment like what is it what is it telling us about what love is what is it telling us about how we should feel about other people mm-hmm. um is the emotion that it's evoking in us is it just sentiment like pulling on the heartstrings or does it? Kind of contain an echo of something truer, and I'm curious to know, regardless of the the things that stick out like sore thumbs, in the final analysis for you, do you feel like it it this version of Cyrano manages that kind of link?
1: I don't think so, and I think it's because most good musicals have like a couple of different types of songs in them. Um, there's an "I want" song, and I think most of the songs that happen in this are like "I want" songs, and then there's an "I." got what I came for song and like something to, to close it out. Like, I think you need both of those to get sort of a balanced emotional arc to a musical. And almost all of the songs in this movie are, I want songs or in the case of um, uh, oh shoot um, Ben Mendelssohn's character in the case of I have the IMDb. Up. In the case of um, De Guiche. There's an I deserve song, like I deserve to have Roxanne, but there's no real. I, I did not feel like there was a real resolution to any of those. It's just everybody is longing all of the time and nobody gets what they want quite exactly. Or, and or then nobody, if they do, it's thwarted right, like right, immediately. Yeah, yeah no, everybody,
0: everybody wants, wants something, something and it kind of begins and ends with wanting. Mm-hmm. And, and, and,
1: and Bittersweet is great. Like I love that, but I don't feel like this musical quite. I don't feel like this movie quite got the full roundedness of human emotion. And I think you really need that in a musical,
0: you know, as much as I like the national, I do wonder if that might be a function of like, I I wonder if you were to take these, these songs of Cyrano and put them on an album and uh, you know, just kind of listen to it all the way through. It would sound a lot like a national album. Mm -hmm. And that's no small thing. I mean, inject it into my veins. <laughs> yeah. um, but I, I think it's very true that the national does have a sort of wheelhouse where they, where it's, v- they're very comfortable hanging out. Where a lot of their songs are about yearning in different, in different ways, or um, you know, having having certain emotions in different contexts. But in terms of finding that sort of that, that resolution, or or maybe that that consummation, mm-hmm. maybe would be a better a better word for it, uh, where those those desires amount to something, isn't isn't something that at least they succeed in doing with their music in in this film, mm-hmm. and I don't know that Wright really does much on the directorial side of things to to do that either.
1: Yeah, I agree with you there. It just it's sort of dissipates towards the end in a way that just did not work for me yeah Yeah.
0: well uh listeners that is our review of the new adaptation of Cyrano that is going into wide release this weekend um it has been in limited release for a while so you some of you may have had a chance to see it but if you haven't had a chance to see it up to this point this weekend is your shot to Check it out. So let us know if you've seen it. What you what you thought about Sierra. What you think about the national. What you think about Sarah's stone heart <laughs> with the wartime <laughs> sequence. Uh, I, I gotta do it I'm sorry please
1: vindicate me listeners <laughs> <laughs> I need someone on my side in this battle <laughs>
0: or, or tell me that I'm completely wrong that's totally okay too you can tweet us at see, believe, pod with your thoughts as always or you can send something to our email inbox at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com don't go anywhere we're going to be jumping into a review of Carol after this break So uh, there, there you have it, uh, Sarah. You have officially been on the show for long enough that I'm going to start haranguing you about opinions <laughs> that I find ins- unsatisfactory. Uh, so yeah, I, I guess that's a milestone of a sort. <laughs> it's
1: it's good. Yeah, I haven't said fight me on air yet, but I probably will at some point because that's just something I say to all my friends. So. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I'll look forward to that when it happens, listeners. Uh, we look forward to uh, hearing from you, as always, uh, with your your thoughts on the show or on the movies that we talk about. Uh, we always look forward also to checking our, our Patreon feed. So I was actually really excited this week, Sarah. We got a brand new patron pledging $10 a month to the show. It's so great to have people uh, send some of their hard-earned dollars our way. Uh, Ron Erickson, thank you so much for, for pledging. We're really happy to have you on board we will be working with you to send you that personalized list of recommendations here in a second and we'll also be on the lookout for which film you want to dictate to us that we have to review on air so it should be fun listeners uh, who haven't pledged if that sounds like a good time to you if you want to get in on that then just go to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast And that'll give you a chance to check out the various tiers you can pledge at, including uh, the $8 tier, which gets you a personalized list of recommendations from me and Sarah, Mm -hmm. or uh, the $10 tier, which allows you to also nefariously choose movies, or not so nefariously, as the case may be, to uh, review on the air.
1: I mean... If you send us a movie that we will probably fight over, I'll thank you for it.
0: <laughs> you, you know, those are some of the most fun episodes to record. So by all means, if you kind of have a sense for a movie that one of us will like and the other one will hate, you know, having have listened to the show for as long as you have, mm-hmm. send that along. Bring that it on. Would be, that would be great. But regardless of your motives for making those recommendations, we love to receive them and we're looking forward to hearing what Ron has in store for us. So, yeah, thanks for pledging, Ron. And for all the rest of you listeners out there, thanks for listening.
1: So, we're going to go to the watch list um, to watch a movie that one of us hasn't seen and the other one has. So, in this case, Kevin has recommended this week that we watch Tom Haynes's Carol, uh, which came out in 2015. And if I remember, right, it was in the Oscar running. Um, mm-hmm for that particular year. So Kevin, why did you make me watch a Christmas movie in the middle of February? <laughs> so
0: I, I had not really realized this that this was such a, a perfect Christmas movie. It is. It takes place right around the Christmas season. You know, Santa hats figure prominently into the movie. Uh, I mainly picked it because I was trying to come up with a watch list selection that would pair well with Cyrano. And when I, when you're thinking of movies about romantic yearning that are also period pieces, I mean, Carol was one of the first... Uh, examples that popped into my mind Mm -hmm. and I was hoping you know I I really like it obviously because that's why I recommended it Mm -hmm. Um, but I'm hoping Sarah that you like it too so that we can get Carol some justice for being I, I don't know that Carol won much of anything at the Oscars the year it was it was nominated and that's not fair. we gotta we gotta rectify this,
1: yeah, it definitely re- deserves a lot of recognition. I have a lot of friends who love this movie quite a lot, so I'm sort of I was familiar with it by reputation and by Tumblr gift sets because that is the era that it came out in. And that's when I was still on Tumblr. Um, but, yeah, it's also a really good pairing with Cyrano because the music is just so good. Um, I didn't know Carter that Carter Burwell, Burwell did the score, but it's absolutely incredible. There's some great harp and oboe, and just like really nice, sad and plaintive and longing as well, um, in an emotional way that I think the arc of this movie works a little bit better than Cyrano's does. So.
0: Oh, unquestionably. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I, so I, I saw this movie for the first time uh, the year it came out, right? Okay. Um, but I haven't watched it since then. I just remember really liking it. And turning it on, I, there was so much that I didn't remember. And one of those things was Carter Burwell's score. I mean, five minutes into the movie, I was like... Ah i i love this i love this movie i love this the music the cinematography everything about it
1: yeah there's almost like an overture where the camera is focused on like a subway grate or what appears to be a, a very elaborate pattern and then it turns out to be a subway grate and it starts off with like a little bit of an overture of carter burwell's um score and that's when i knew i was in good hands with this movie um also, just keenly aware of just, like, nonverbal communication as well. Like, there's so much that happens in this film that's just body language or people, like, making meaningful glances at each other. Um, and what is left unsaid, I think, is just as, if not more important than what's said um, Carol's really a, a movie about insinuation, I think, and about like starting to understand somebody in such a way that you don't necessarily need to talk to them in order to be able to communicate with them. Um, and on that level, I think this really works too, like on a cinematic level. I, I mean, I know it's adapted from a book, but I couldn't really imagine this particular story being told this particular way in any other medium.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it really is a perfect pairing in, in Todd Haynes' hands, the way that he executes this this vision is a perfect pairing for the subject matter. So for for any listeners who haven't had a chance to watch this movie, uh, it's a, you know, uh, Cate Blanchett plays the title character, Carol, who strikes up a flirtation with a shop girl named Therese, played here by Rooney Mara. And they, uh, you know, they uh, are two women who fall in love over the course of the film, which in the time period where it's set, the 1950s, I mean, there, there's even a phrase to describe it. It's the love that dare not speak its name. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, there that so much of this film is about nonverbal communications, about insinuation, about wanting to say something, wanting to tell somebody things, but mm-hmm. not either not having the words or not feeling free to speak them is just integral to, the, to this story. And I think part of the reason why it works so well in this format.
1: Well, there's some danger in here too, right? Because Carol is also in the middle of a very acrimonious divorce with her husband, um, who is very aware of who uh, Carol is and who she tends to be attracted to as well. And um, her husband also is... Pretty vindictive and is willing to use that against her in their divorce and to separate Carol from her daughter as well. So it's not just the time period, but there's also very deeply personal stakes happening here as well.
0: I want to get your thought. So when when I s- settled on Carol for my watch list recommendation, mm-hmm. the one question that I knew I wanted to ask you about uh was kate Blan was about yes. Kate Blanchett's performance? Yes, because I mean, no secret, I think she's tremendous in this movie, but i I really want to get your thoughts. Like what did you think of her, and and what did you see in her performance?
1: I mean, I too have been known to be transfixed by Kate (laughs) (laughs) Blanchett whenever I see her. As well, I think she's tremendous in this as well. Like you said, Um, she does so much with like just a shift of the mouth. I think like when she's looking at somebody, you can tell like what she's thinking about them has changed a little bit. Like she'll shift her her mouth or her eyes a little bit, and then she'll lost my words because I'm transfixed by Kate Blanchette. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it's,
0: it's been known to happen. <laughs> it,
1: it happens to the best of us, honestly. Um, uh, let's see here. Um, like she'll, she'll shift her mouth or she'll shift her face and then she'll move on and like sort of smooth it over. But you can tell that like whatever that she has said in order to smooth over the situation that she's in. She's still thinking about that and she's still processing it and dealing with it, um, even if she's not going to show that outwardly to anybody else around her. I think it's a very, like, beautifully interior performance, um, which is really difficult to do. Um, So much so that I kind of wish that I had gotten kind of a similar, like almost the same level of performance from Rooney Mara as Therese. Like Therese is also a very interior character and you do get a lot of what she's feeling just based on the way that she's framed and the way that the camera shows Carol. And you can tell like what Therese is thinking about her as she's looking at her. But I almost wish that they had been just slightly more balanced a little bit more towards Therese's interiority as well, because you get a lot of that on Carol's face, but you don't quite get the same amount of interiority on, on Rooney Mara's.
0: Yeah. I, you know, it's, I, that's an interesting point. I hadn't really, when rewatching it, I, I thought Mara was great too. I, I thought I didn't have She's any fantastic. problems. With her performance. I think, yeah. I wonder if it's just that side by side with an icon like Blanchett, it's just, it's hard for any actress to sort of hold her own on screen with her, especially, mm-hmm. When you're playing a character who is ostensibly uh, somebody who who holds a lot of allure, who is entranced, Mm -hmm. uh, Kate Blanchett's character, I was thinking of, I was trying to think of adjectives to describe what Blanchett is doing here, and I I eventually landed on on the word sphinx-like, and I think that's that's key to what makes her such an interesting actress. Is a lot of times you you sense there's so much going on Mm -hmm. behind that face, Mm -hmm. and she's got this. Wonderful way of using her face to, you know, she it, it's got kind of this half smile. It's almost like a Mona Lisa kind of smile where there's something going on. You're not sure what it is. And that's part of what makes her so fascinating. Yeah. I think, so, and, and that's something that we see in all sorts of performances for her. But I think in this film, what makes it so miraculous is... She does have that, you know, that sphinx-like exterior where you, you know, you don't know if you can quite penetrate into her full, like, what's going on behind there. She's kind of mm-hmm. wearing a, a veil or a mask, mm-hmm. but she also there's so much vulnerability to her performance. Too. Like she, it's it's not it's not a closed off performance where she's just yeah. emotionally unavailable. There is so much emotion there, and yet she also keeps that keeps us at a remove as well. It's like this this woman who. Um, feels obligated to protect herself by cloaking her true feelings and desires. Mm-hmm. But those true feelings and desires are no th- nonetheless more powerful for it.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I should clarify, like Rooney Mara is great in this movie. It's just, okay, good. it's really, just really, really sure. hard. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> it's really hard to match Kate Blanchett. And maybe that's the genius of the casting too, right? Because these two roles, like you kind of need both of those types of performances. Like you need someone who is, older and a little bit more grounded and knows what she wants and knows how to hide parts of herself in order to move throughout the world versus someone who straight up admits at one point in the movie, like she doesn't know what she wants. Um, Therese says that she keeps saying yes to things because she doesn't know what she actually wants to say yes to. And she's so inexperienced that she says, I'm going to just keep following this woman because I'm, I'm entranced with her. And there's, I mean, what else am I supposed to do with myself at this point? Like I've fallen for her and I'm going to, I'm I'm going to follow her for as long as I possibly can. Like that makes sense for me. So I think those two performances, like maybe I'm talking myself into liking this movie even yeah. more than I already well, did. Yeah.
0: It's been known to happen. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I I agree that there's this weird quality to this film where it, it, in a lot of ways, it's not all that complex. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's it's the the characters their their desires are pretty clear. Um the the you know, where the audience's sympathies are supposed to lie, that's also made pretty clear. It's not mm-hmm. uh ambiguous in that way. And yet, the more you watch it, I think the more uh I mean, you you've only seen it the one time obviously, but and I've only seen it twice, but I do feel like this is the sort of film that is Rich with a lot of emotional texture, maybe, mm-hmm. and I, I think a lot of that is down to not just the performances and the story itself, but also just to the way Haynes and his cinematographer Edward Lockman shoot this film. This yeah. this film was shot on like on film so much and so intentionally so that that's a big portion of the uh, the end credits is talking about you know what film stock was used and what cameras were used. And man, you can see every bit of it on screen.
1: Oh, it's like 16 millimeter super, right? Which is like a really, really, really small format, but it does allow you to like blow up and see a lot more detail than you would on like an even smaller format. So there's a lot of really tight intentional close-ups, I think, and you can kind of see the grain of the film on them. I, I saw rich. that
0: film grain, and I I felt like crying because <laughs> we used to be a real country. We used to make things. it just it, it gives it gives the film a tactility, mm-hmm. I guess that I you know digital cinematography has come so far. It's not that that's bad, but. When you get to sink back into a film that is shot in this way, mm-hmm. it it does feel, it, it's just got a, a qualitatively different feel to it.
1: Yeah, and it almost threw me a little bit because the lighting feels a little bit strange and I couldn't quite put my finger on it at first, but I think it's because there's like this greenish glow like from Mercury lamps, which would be time appropriate. Um, for this movie. And then I think the the camera grain also like picks that up in some interesting ways too. So it almost feels cold and closed off at first. And I think that's necessary because that's kind of what both of these characters are feeling at the time that you first meet them. They're closed off and then they meet each other and they start to open up a little bit more and the color grading gets a little bit warmer as a result too.
0: It, it, I, I, was, I commented to my wife while we were watching the film that, that I'm not often dialed into details of of costuming, of makeup, I'll notice it. You know, if it's very ostentatious, but oftentimes, you know, it, it's something that I have to really be watching closely to for it to register with me. And this film, I didn't. I, I felt like the the costuming really grabbed me, and I think part of the credit has to go to the cinematography because a lot of the costuming it, it's very colorful. There's mm-hmm. there's you know, uh, Therese wears this red and yellow stocking cap that's that's uh very interesting the the color red um, is used uh, in a couple of places most notably when Carol visits Therese's apartment mm-hmm. you know it's kind of this this dingy New York apartment Therese is wearing you know a dark conservative outfit and Carol shows up wearing this bright red dress, bright red lipstick and she just she's like this flame uh, mm-hmm. among all of the you know the 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 greenish cinematography and the The dingy surroundings. And, uh, you know, it it just stands in stark contrast to something like the TV show Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which is all candy colored and it pops in. It's lots of fun, but I feel like the the more muted cinematography paradoxically makes those brightly colored costuming decisions land with much more of a of a impact than they might otherwise. It
1: allows for more texture. I think if, if you don't necessarily like push everything up to 11 with the color, like, yeah, exactly. That totally works. Um, that's also really fitting because I think the first thing I noticed about Teresa's apartment was just how cold it was. Like there's this great, like scene setting moment right at the beginning where she lights the pilot light inside her oven and then like leaves the door open.
0: She's wrapped in a blanket. yeah,
1: Yeah, to keep herself warm. And then she's also brushing her teeth in her kitchen sink because it's sort of implied like there is no bathroom sink for her to use. Like you can tell where she's living and like what sort of like class structure she's she's living on at this point. And you don't actually like, you're never told, oh, she has no money or, oh, she has like, you're never explicitly told like, oh, she's poor or, oh, she, she doesn't really have like any like social standing or anything like that. You just get those two little details and then you know that she's, she's working retail like in a toy shop in, in a department store at Christmas time. Like that tells you all you need to know about this character and like where she exists in the world. And then when Carol first shows up, she's wearing fur like, you can tell. And, so,
0: and so lush. Like, yeah. Haynes' camera lingers on that fur coat.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and you can tell immediately who these two people are and where they are from and how they're going to relate to each other, first as employee and as customer, which is a huge power imbalance. And then as they get to know each other a little bit more, those boundaries, I think, start to blur a little bit. Like, Carol still dresses very nicely, but she's she's dressed a little bit less like fine than she first is in that first department store appearance like she loses the fur at some point and she's wearing that bright red coat instead um and you can tell that these two people are starting to grow a little bit closer to each other just based on the costuming alone which is a really smart detail
0: yeah and uh that does so much you know it's yeah every film romance i feel like you know you have to feel that tension like you you want the 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 heat between the two romantic leads the the gravity that's drawing them together it's important that the audience is able to apprehend that somehow and I think the these costuming choices that you're talking about goes so long to do that and I think Haynes is so good with small details mm-hmm. that have that sort of effect I was reading. Uh, some uh reviews of this film from the time it came out, just kind of in preparation for this episode and Mike D'Angelo of the A v Club uh observed that the very first time that Therese visits Carol's home, you know, way out in like the the Jersey suburbs, you know opulence galore um and they're they're hanging out they're they're both at ease. It's just the two of them uh downstairs. uh Carol's daughter is sleeping upstairs. And Carol has uh, removed her shoes. She's, you know, they're they're mm. they're just, you know, hanging out in the living room. But Carol's removed her shoes, and that's like this this for the time period, this very intimate gesture. That's mm-hmm. underlined when Carol's husband unexpectedly comes home, and Carol, you know, rushes to get her heels back on.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's almost more flagrant than if she had been like half dressed or something. Yeah, yeah. I hadn't even thought about that. That's a great detail. Yeah,
0: and and that makes the the point when they kind of do run off together on this on this road trip and they grow closer together those like the the intimacy they they finally achieve uh, it it feels like all those small details like the shoes and the 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 fur coat kind of culminate in that moment and again it's not something that is done through dialogue they don't spend a lot of time talking about oh i feel so closed off or i feel entrapped by the world around me it's all told through nonverbal gestures and and scene setting
1: yeah and it's funny because i was thinking about the um road trip like there's a scene where they're in a motel and carol is doing therese's makeup and it almost feels like a sleepover Mm -hmm. sort of scene and there's still a little bit of an awkwardness between them and i think that's the tension that's at the heart of this movie is that carol is I mean, clearly she's a little bit older. She knows what she wants and Therese doesn't really know what she wants. And there's sort of that tension in between the two of them, even as the two of them are attracted to each other. Um, I found that scene actually almost like painfully awkward in a way, like even though it is supposed to show that they're, they're becoming more intimate and closer to each other, there still seemed to be like this underlying, like, what am I even doing here on this trip? Look on Therese's face. And... I don't know. It it almost undercut. There there is a scene where the two of them do eventually end up becoming like intimate, where they have sex, and that scene doesn't work for me at all because mm-hmm. it is so explicit compared to everything else that happens in the movie. It felt a little bit male gazey to me, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also. There's been so much that has been expressed through what these two characters are not saying that the fact that they do finally eventually act on it, I, I almost kind of wish that there had almost been a did that really actually happen on this road trip sort of thread to the story? Maybe that would have made it less powerful. I'm not entirely sure, but it didn't really quite work for me there.
0: the that scene is it, the the it, it didn't I didn't have a problem with it per se, but I can see where you're coming from with it and and for me, it wasn't so much. Um, the the male gaziness of it as it was just it feels a little bit like gilding the lily. Like we don't mm. need, we don't need to see that. Mm-hmm. uh it's it could it's for a film to be so richly suggestive mm-hmm. of of feelings and uh worldviews mm-hmm. to then kind of show its hand like that. It, it feels not like a flaw, but it, does, it feels ancillary. like, yeah, we don't need to know how that pans out because we already know we know it already yeah
1: that makes sense yeah maybe they should have just cut it i don't know there is a lovely shot of the two of them together sleeping with their arms sort of entangled and i think if it had just been that one shot like that would have worked for me very very well Mm -hmm. so
0: i mean it, it it's it's easy to uh when when you have a film like Carol that is so high quality to see something. that's <laughs> yeah. like, yeah, it could be a little bit better. Yeah. But I don't know for, for me at least it just, it almost feels churlish to, to go to, to, <laughs> I, I don't want to say nitpick cause it's not a, it's not a nitpick. It's a, it's a fair observation, but I just, I want uh, it's you, you want to take it in as a whole. It almost feels like complaining about the, uh, the star Uh, opening for it's a wonderful life where it's a little bit cutesy where the stars are talking to each other. Yeah. It's a wonderful life. is a masterpiece. Yeah. So why would you talk about that?
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, that's, that's fair. I, mm, I don't know. It left me just off balance enough that like, I wasn't quite sure how to feel about this movie towards the end. Um, Perfect ending, by the way, perfect Mm, final shot worked beautifully for me. Um, But yeah, I don't know. I, I, stopped watching the movie. The movie was over and I wasn't entirely sure how to feel about it. And the more I've thought about it, the more taken I am with it. So, um... Yeah, I don't know. I feel like it'll just keep growing in my estimation, honestly.
0: Yeah, well, we'll have to revisit it in a couple of years and, and and we'll see if that actually came true. Maybe at Christmas time. <laughs> maybe, maybe at actual Christmas time, it would be a good view to, uh, to revisit. Listeners, that is our, our watch list review of Carol. Uh, if you had a chance to uh, watch along with us, definitely let us know your thoughts on uh, on Twitter or over email. But I am excited for next week's Watch list entry. That, of course, is going to be Sarah's pick, and she's given me a little bit of a preview. Uh, Sarah, do you want to give uh, listeners a little bit of a preview? So, in case they want to check out this film on their own and in preparation for next week's episode, they can do that.
1: Absolutely. So, our next movie is going to be another fairly recent movie, it came out in 2018. It's called Dead Pigs by Kathy Ann. Um, it's a Chinese movie. Kathy Ann, um, for those who might not know, is also the woman who directed. Um, Birds of Prey or The Fantabulous Emancipation of Harley Quinn um, which is just an incredibly exuberant movie Dead Pigs I think does that exuberance even better Um, and in a very offbeat way it's a fascinating picture of a fascinating group of people and it's also really really funny so I'm excited to share it with you all Um, you can find it on MUBI right now and then it's also available on most of the usual suspects too if you'd like to check it out
0: I'm looking forward to, to checking it out I liked the vibe of Birds of Prey I just... I I've found myself in the same place I often do with superhero movies. Russell. Yeah, it's fun. I just wish it didn't have all the comic book stuff. Same. So <laughs> So I'm really curious to to check out Dead Pigs. It sounds like a like a really interesting picture, and it'll be a, a good pairing with our review next week. We are going to be giving you guys a review of the Batman. So. It's going to be a big episode. Uh, I'm looking forward to, to recording it.
1: I'll be practicing my Batman voice all sure. week.
0: <laughs> I, I, I'm going to... Maybe we should, like, uh, you know, after we stop recording, have a little outtake where we growl at each other. and the, <laughs> um, But, uh, listeners, we won't subject you to that for now. Uh, that will... Uh, be maybe a little bit of bonus content for our patrons we'll, we'll wrap things up here though um, Seeing and Believing is brought to you by the Christ in Pop Culture Podcast Network our producer is Jonathan Clausen who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen I'm your host Kevin McLenathan my co-host is Sarah Welch-Larson and we'll see you next week on the show